and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My special guest today is novelist Ian McEwen, author of Atonement, winner of the Man Booker Prize for Amsterdam, and author of the new novel, Machines Like Me. The novel is set in a technologically advanced alternative 1980s London, in which a loner named Charlie has spent his entire inheritance on a new artificial human named Adam. When Charlie and his upstage neighbor, Miranda, program Adam, they end up with a robot who can think, feel, and abide by a moral compass, all of which leads to repercussions that neither of the biological humans could have imagined. When I recorded my interview with Ian, I was sitting in my cottage in the English countryside, and he was sitting in a hotel room in Denver, Colorado. But the wonders of modern technology mean we can have this conversation, and the wonders of modern technology are, in part at least, the subject of his new novel. So here's my conversation with Ian McEwen. Machines Like Me is set in what some reviewers have called a retro future, a version of the early 1980s in which technology is more advanced than it is today and the history of the world is different from the way those of us who are alive in the 1980s remember it. Why did yeah. you choose an alternate 1980s rather than just a future date? Well, I'm interested in the way the the present, the overwhelming self-evident present is actually the most uh, frail and improbable uh, of constructs, I mean, especially as seen um, from the past. You know, we're, we're hopeless at predicting uh, the future that we make uh, collectively. Um, so um, having decided to have Alan Turing live and wanted him to be sort of old but active, i.e. 70, um, everything else began to follow. So I began to, having tweaked history with that, with um, skipping round his suicide in 1954 and having him flourish as a, as the sort of um, high priest, as it were, of the digital age through the 50s and 60s, um, I then began to just think, well, let's just tweak uh, issues like uh, the Falklands Walk, which could so easily have had a different outcome. I mean, had the Argentinians, for example, primed their missiles correctly, uh, and that would have had massive consequences uh, politically in Britain, but also politically um, uh, in Argentina. Uh, what we have now, what, what we confront now in the present, it could so easily have been otherwise. And, and we tend to forget that. It, it just overwhelms us. It's so, it just seems to be how it was always bound to be. And our industrial revolution, for example, starting in the in north of England in the 18th century, could easily have happened later, earlier, uh, in another country, uh, in different circumstances, with different kinds of technology. Um, and it seems irresistible, I think, for a novelist to, who's also deciding outcomes all along the way uh, to, to play with these things. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Turing, and uh, like like you, I've been fascinated with Turing for a long time and uh -huh. been to Bletchley on multiple occasions. But you, as you said, imagine him uh, surviving the 1950s. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like to sort of create the Alan Turing of the 60s and 70s. 
Well, it's, it was a wonderful opportunity to give him the life that he could have had. Um, I mean, as I, I suppose many people know, I'm not so sure, uh, maybe a younger generation doesn't, but he, he probably did more than any single individual to shorten the Second World War. And the colossal irony is that the very state he served then persecuted him under the uh, contemporary vicious and ridiculous anti-gay laws um, and uh, gave him an option. He could either plead guilty or submit to a course of chemical castration. Uh, unfortunately for us, he chose the latter. And most uh, experts on his life think that this led indirectly to his suicide in 54. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to sort of redeem him and bring him to life maybe as a sort of figure that who uh, was like a Stephen Hawking uh, presence in, among us. Uh, he would have lived through the 60s. Uh, I have him go to the Salk Institute to in, um, become part of a, a scene, bohemian, but also a science scene uh, in San Francisco. Uh, comes back, uh, is a major figure in concern about the Amazon forests, Is a becomes something of a gay icon because uh, his partner uh, he lives with openly before those terrible laws were repealed and so on. But also I wanted him as a central figure in the novel who would act as a kind of chorus, really, um, whom the narrator would, would, would confront on a couple of uh, important occasions. You, in your alternate history, you, you mentioned already that you rewrite the outcome of the Falklands War. You reunite the Beatles, which I especially liked. Uh, are there other changes that you considered making but rejected? What, what was your sort of guide about this feels like a good alternative history and this maybe doesn't? Well, my, my chief concern was to restrain myself because actually uh, the center of this novel is a moral issue between an artificial human and two humans. Uh, and I could see how tempting it was once I was flying down this route of, um, of the novel just veering off into a completely different um, set of outcomes in a completely different world. So um, I wanted the work, my counterfactual 80s to be close enough in some respects uh, to the world we have or the world we had. Um, so I, I mean, I can't really remember all the things I, I didn't do. I just had this sense that, uh, I was having fun with it, mm. uh, tweaking this and that. Uh, and, uh, I was very, I became very, very cautious. I thought this is enough. I mean, one of the things that interests me about a past and this present is that we invent these wondrous toys uh, and then within months uh, they are no longer wondrous. Uh, I mean, I was in yeah. Manhattan a few years back and uh, saw a huge line of you know, several hundred yards down the street and asked my friend what this was about. I thought it was people trying to get into some sort of club. Uh, but they had uh, sleeping bags with them and they'd been on the pavement all night. What were they queuing for was uh, an iPhone 5. <laughs> yeah, we laugh. I mean, where are those iPhone, Where are those phones now? They're, yeah. they're somewhere at the bottom of your sock drawer. Right. Or they're in the hands of your grandchildren. Um, but, you know, uh, in that respect, we resemble kind of spoiled children at Christmas, tearing open one present, glancing at it, and then tearing open the next. Mm -hmm. And... Those wondrous things rapidly become junk or so ordinary 
um, we take them for granted, but they also become they become sort of grubby in in the present. So you know, we now cr- resent crowding ourselves onto you know some low cost domestic flight, uh, forgetting you know looking out the window from thirty thousand feet, a complete miracle. If you could bring Charles Dickens with you, he would be astounded. Yeah, yeah. Um, how rapidly that becomes a kind of irritating where well, you've got to get somewhere else. This is the only way to do it. Um, so the, the future when it arrives and becomes the present uh, can be quite paradoxical. It's got all these extraordinary toys, but they're just as grubby and sort of self-evident as the toys we already have. Yeah. You the, the book is called Machines Like Me, but you have a subtitle which sort of throws the ball right back at the reader, which is, and people like you. What do you see as the relationship between the characters, and particularly the artificial human, Adam, and your readers? Well, I think that, I mean, we're only on the edge of this ocean of AI. It's just beginning to intrude in our lives. Uh, If we get further down the line and begin to question whether we've created something whose algorithms are, are so complex and interesting that we begin to wonder if they're even conscious and sentient, it's really going to throw us back onto wondering then what are what are the boundaries between us and them? Uh, we're both made of stardust, as it were. We are both material objects that somehow uh, generates consciousness. Can we claim any superiority here? Um, what is it to be human? Uh, is it simply to be a material thing? Um, and I ask this question myself as a materialist i honestly do think the mind is the product of uh, this one kilo liquid cooled thing called the brain uh part of the history of ai i guess has been one long disappointment because uh, the brain and all its functions turns out to be far more complex in terms of processing than we ever imagined certainly than Turing ever imagined. In the late 40s, he, he thought he was 10 years away from a thinking machine. Mm. Um, now we know that even raising a cup to our lips is a matter of extraordinary visual processing and um, awareness of uh, limbs in space and so on. Um, that's all beginning to change. This last yeah. 10 years, I've seen, yeah. I think, a, a, a silver, if not golden age of AI now beginning to, you know, come to terms with your neural networks and deep learning, and uh, suddenly the the future uh, looks fascinating, threatening, complex, and um, you know, ripe ripe for novelistic exploration. In in both your revised history of the world and also in the lives of your your primary human characters, Charlie and Miranda, we see. Um, that really go back to that quote you just said, that all of history and the shape of our lives turn on these seemingly random events. And Charlie says it. He says the present is the frailest of possible constructs. Yeah. Is free, will, me is, is free will then just an illusion since we can never predict the consequences of our actions? I think it's always been difficult philosophically to make a firm case for free will, even though it seems a kind of necessary illusion. And it certainly is a necessary factor in our criminal courts. We have to take responsibility for our actions. 
Um, but, you know, we didn't choose our parents, we didn't choose our genes, uh, we didn't choose our environment. Um, we feel we, uh, to echo Schopenhauer, I mean, we feel we can choose what we like, um, but uh, we didn't determine the kinds of things we like. Um, so that remains a paradox for us. Um, and the future, which is definitely what we all conspire to make together, uh, is completely, on the other hand, out of our control. So no, I don't think there's, a, there's much space left for a free will argument here. Mm. By the way, if we if we don't develop um, machines like Adam, then you know the Mexicans or the Chinese or uh, someone will. Yeah. Um, yeah. You you mentioned. You mentioned the criminal justice system. Um, Adam and Miranda have very different ideas about what constitutes justice, and they sort of come into conflict on this. One is one is a very rational one, and one is perhaps more emotional. And as yeah. readers, we can understand both of their points of view, I think, which, which leads me to ask, is there really such a thing as justice? And if so, what is justice? Well, um, you put your finger on what, for me at least, is the center of this novel, that Miranda has in her past uh, an act of revenge. Um, and Adam takes the view that this revenge uh, should be punished and she should accept the rule of law and go to prison. And uh, Charlie, the narrator, who's in love with Miranda, and Miranda herself feel that she had very good cause um, and that it involves um, the life of a, of a small child too, that she, uh, and important that she shouldn't go to prison. And I think as, you know, full-blooded, warm humans, we, we tend to cut Miranda some slack here, even though we would accept Adam's argument that the rule of law is there for a function, an important element of social cohesion, and that a society based on revenge uh, would be both violent and uh, rapidly dysfunctional. So I've rather stacked the matter, but this was the dilemma really at the heart of uh, of the novel. Um, it's an old-fashioned, in, in a sense, this is an old-fashioned novel uh, uh, about a about a moral issue in which there is no clear answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel torn within myself, um, and um, I'm I'm rather glad that you did too, because I, I I'm not sure there's a simple answer to this. Um, I mean, Adam says, well, you said you would pay uh, any cost to exact this revenge. Going to prison is the cost. Um, uh, Disrupting the life and the future prospects of a four-year-old boy is also the price. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, we feel that she's a good person at heart and she shouldn't suffer and she shouldn't go to jail. Um, So, yeah, that's... Uh, as as one of the characters says, it's very hard to write the algorithm for cutting someone some slack. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and this is why I guess general intelligence is the holy grail of, of AI research now, that you could have an active intelligence um, getting its mind around completely unexpected and new situations uh, without rigidly applying rules. Uh, very, very difficult to do that. And that mm-hmm. might be one defining aspect of what it is to be human as opposed to being an artificial human. In contrast with the sometimes impulsive and irrational decisions that the human characters make, 
Adam, the robot, makes these sort of super rational and defensible decisions that yet to us, they seem moral, yet they also can seem terrifying. Um, and although he acts in what we might consider to be a traditionally moral way, it's, yeah. it's easy for the reader to side with Charlie and Miranda. Is is human morality as it really exists nothing more than rationalizing what we want to do? Or is traditional philosophical ethics just ignoring what it really means to be human? Well, I mean, this is an ancient and uh, central question to, to moral philosophy, and I, I couldn't possibly pretend to have the answer to it. Um, I mean, I, I, I have a stab at it at saying, well, what is the essential good? I mean, I, I think once you move beyond religion, uh, it, it's easy enough if you have religious faith, you have certain texts, certain scriptures, and you have the idea of a kind of supernatural being um, who is the fount of of, um, of moral law. If, like me, you can't hold such beliefs, it's quite hard to get to what is the irreducible good. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose, I mean, there have been various attempts, honorable attempts in recent years to say, well, look, um, maximizing the well-being of others um, as well as yourself or it, uh, only others is is one important aspect of moral law. I come to a slightly different semi-conclusion about this, that is that the ultimate good is to own a consciousness um, and that if you go and buy yourself an artificial human for a lot of money, bring it home, and then you begin to feel that it actually does have a consciousness, it has subjective feelings and sentience, in what respect can you be said to own this consciousness? Mm. I feel you can't. I don't think... So, I mean, and yet, why not? I mean, um, I, can't give, I can't give an ultimate answer. I mean, rather like Immanuel Kant, finally you have to get to sort of boundary condition and say, this is a categorical imperative. You know, the, we just state this as a good in itself. Mm-hmm. And I would say owning a consciousness is a good in itself and everything else has to flow from there. Uh, and that, to come back to Alan Turing, um, that is something of the curse he delivers on the narrator at the end of this novel. Because uh, um, Charlie attempts to destroy Adam with a hammer. Yeah. Um, at that point, <clears throat> he's treating Adam like a thing and not a consciousness. And I think a lot of human badness, if I can put it that way, is uh, stems from treating people like things and not like yeah. consciousnesses yeah. such as you own yourself. Yeah. One of the ways in which the Adams and the Eves in Machines Like Me carry their humanness to an extreme um, is that in sort of, and this kind of goes on in the background of the novel that many of them are participating in that most tragic of human actions, committing suicide. Yeah. And, and like so many human suicides, these are ultimately unexplained. I mean, there's sort of hints about what might be going on here. Is the capacity for self-destruction part of what makes them more human? Well, I think that if we 
try to give moral precepts to uh, an artificial human, we would be very likely to try and give it um, the better angel of our nature. Uh, they would become the better angels of our nature. Uh, we know how to be good. Um, our over-the-garden fence gossip, as well as all our f moral philosophy and all our religions, uh, show us that we... Um, are perfectly capable of knowing how to be good. Our great difficulty is in all our cognitive defects uh, and self-interest and uh, self-persuasion uh, that make it very hard for us to be good all the time, especially en masse. So um, Adam and his cohort uh, find themselves in a world in which, on the one hand, humans are expressing, let's say, um, the idea that uh, virgin forests uh, and nature itself are a source of wonder and uh, we must preserve it. On the other hand, we, we're destroying it at a colossal rate. Uh, I gather figures for 2018 are particularly depressing, for the, for, especially for tropical forests. Or we say that there is no greater uh, important human being than a child, uh, and yet many children around the world are dying of uh, preventable diseases or being killed in bombing raids in Yemen. And an artificial consciousness such as I've devised here find these contradictions overwhelming mm -hmm. uh, and cannot bear them. Um, so the, in other words, the question would be, can an imperfect creature like us uh, create a, another artificial creature who could bear to live among us, given these contradictions, mm -hmm. given that we've given them our, our best selves. In a review of your novel in The New Yorker, Julian Lucas quotes James Bridle, who suggested a fourth rule of robotics to supplement Isaac Asimov's famous three. And his, his proposed fourth rule is a robot must be able to explain itself to humans. Do you see as Adam is conforming to, to Asimov's three rules? And, and does that seem a reasonable fourth rule to you? Well, Adam breaks the first rule by um, snapping um, uh, the narrator's wrist, mm. although he says by accident. Um, and he's trying to defend the kill switch. Um, I think Adam makes attempts to explain himself, and he falls in love um, and is irritated and baffled when uh, uh, Charlie says, you know, that's not your territory. How you know that's absurd that you should fall in love, and tries to prove it by the the, the haikus he writes to his loved one Miranda. So he is trying to persuade himself. But whether Adam could really, uh, let's say, write a novel, um, that would be, I guess, uh, a litmus test partly of whether he was conscious or not. Uh, and it would also be a test um, of whether he could explain himself to humans. He might be much better explaining himself to, to the rest of his cohort. So I, I, think, it's, I, I think that fourth law is, very, is a very difficult one. Mm. I mean, it, it sets a high bar. Uh, and we might find in the future that uh, as artificial minds become involved in planning the next generation, you know, the iPhone 5 being abandoned for the 6 and 7, uh, that 
they drift away from us. They they don't feel uh, it's necessary to explain themselves to humans so much as to each other. And when I think back to certain technologies, like when the automobile came along, uh, if you look, if you remember the pictures of these first automobiles, they resembled horse-drawn carriages without the horses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One hangs on, as it were, to the technology that's behind it. Uh, and much of our language, you know, around computers um, rests heavily on a on a previous age. You know, we use words, you know, memory and so on. Um, so I've got a strong sense that when it'll get to a certain point of departure, especially once they're involved in the design, where we might actually find a colossal barrier of mutual incomprehension. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded as the book progresses and we see that Adam is capable of falling in love, he's capable of having a, a, a moral compass, he seems more and more like a human being. Um, and, and it reminds me of this quote, I'm hoping I'm, I'm getting this right, from, from Mr. Spock on Star Trek who says, uh, a difference that is no difference makes no difference, or some words to that effect. <laughs> right. um, and, and, so I guess the question is, you know, as we get closer and closer to artificial intelligence being no different from from human intelligence what if anything should humankind do to preserve the uniqueness of our humanity well uh why should we is the first question i hmm. ask and, and, and i think to, to come back to your premise i mean i guess we would apply the old-fashioned turing test you know? yeah in other words if you cannot tell the difference then you may as well assume that this entity this artificial entity is as a human, because you, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, I hadn't heard that remark from Spock, but um, I think he puts his finger on something quite vital, and it seems to grow out of the Turing test. I mean, that is that is in the spirit of it. You can't tell the difference. When you can't tell the difference, then you're in a world of might as well accept uh, this entity as human. And then, of course, we open up a whole wonderful world of uh, speculation about granting rights and responsibilities, um, should they vote, um, should they stand for office politically, um, should we take orders from them as we do from other humans. Um, then we are really uh, in an open-ended future. And, and again, um, I think novelists who explore this, especially within the science fiction world, will find themselves becoming more and more central to the question. Um, we need writers with a strong technical awareness uh, and an awareness of how technical change constantly poses uh, warm-blooded moral questions. Yeah, yeah. You, you call, Adam, at one point, the triumph of humanism or the angel of death. Uh, it, is this in some ways a cautionary tale about the possibility that AI could be the latter? Well, I, I, I think... You know, it, it's open-ended for us at, the, at, at this point. Um, I, I mean, the modern text for us, I guess, for a long time has been Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, Frankenstein's monster becomes a murderer, and that has really become our kind of fable uh, that warns us against how technology could, our own technology could destroy us. Um, I try here to take a slightly more nuanced view. 
we could well end up making creatures who are kinder, more sensitive, uh, cleverer, better memories, um, and are more moral than us. And and even that <laughs> would represent a threat. Um, what what use for us then? You know, is is the obvious question. Um, already, you know, uh, it's hardly AI, but you know, robotic forms of machinery are are doing the work of um, you know of engineers and um, car manufacturers and, uh, and workers there, and they're being people are being already being laid off and. And already, of course, um, white collar jobs and professional uh, jobs like uh, medicine and uh, and law uh, are being altered by um, programs that can sift vast amounts of data and draw conclusions. Um, so, I don't think there's any way we can stop ourselves with this. Uh, it's going to pose many, many moral questions for us in ways that uh, uh, technology has in the past, but this will be more intense. I mean, already, for example, um, our technology via the Internet and social media has maybe uh, subverted um, political processes in the United States. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that has got you know, colossal human consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, we really are, uh, to come back to your, your earlier point, I mean, we, we blunder into the future with, with no free will, even though we, we set the terms with our wonderful, gleaming new toys. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You can answer all of them in just a few words, but uh, hopefully they'll give us all something to think about. Uh, and so if you're ready, we will, we will begin the speed round. What word do you love to work into your writing? I, there's no word I love to work into my writing. Okay. No single word. What word do okay. you? What word do you, <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Again, I, I, I don't have an answer to that. That's all right. What's your favorite? Am place? I disappointing you? Uh, no, sorry. not at all. I, I mean, I mean the, the, no those answer, aren't single things for me. No answer is a is a legitimate yeah. answer. Okay. Where's, where's your favorite place to write? I love hotel rooms. Hmm. Uh, they are kind of liminal space outside of um, all the obligations. But also, uh, I write in a, a, an old converted barn at home uh, out in the country, so it's very quiet. And I love working there, too. Where could you never write? Uh, in a discotheque. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Um... That's a very good question. Let me just think about that. Um, we now live in a world of um, contested pronouns. Mm-hmm. And um, I find myself somewhat in revolt against the demands of that. What, what was the first book you remember reading? It was a, a book about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> Um, I was completely fixated on it at the age of, I don't know, two and a half or three. Mm. It was the only book I wanted read to me. It's the only book I wanted to turn the pages of. Um, and the, there was that terrible song that went with it. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> which I just, uh, you know, nowadays I, I, 
I'm not sure I'd get even more pleasure from listening to Mahler's Fifth, <laughs> another recital of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. What are you reading now? Um, I am reading a novel by um, a writer called Tom Rackman um, called The Italian Teacher, and I recommend it to everybody. I think it's um, a, a really extraordinary novel um, about an artist, about a painter of, of, of extraordinary, extravagant character and his suffering son. What book would you like to have written? Well, uh, if we extend the idea of book into play, I suppose sure. the supreme piece of literature remains for me Hamlet. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yes, to have written that, uh, I, I, I wouldn't bother with the rest of the 36 plays that Shakespeare <laughs> wrote. I'd be sink back on my laurels. Right. Uh, what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? Um one of those kind of doorstep multi-generational novels mm. uh, or a, for a Romana Fleur, one that sort of uh, passes on from character to character th through the years. Um, I like the idea of such a book, but uh, I know I'll never write it. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I've just reread your book mm. and loved it. That's great. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Ian McEwen, whose new book, Machines Like Me, is available wherever books are sold. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking to Sean Levy, author of a delicious Hollywood history, The Castle on Sunset, about the Chateau Marmont. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.